Hi, welcome back to Meraki Unboxed. My name is Simon Thompson, host of the show. And as I say every time, it is fantastic to have you back with us once again. Uh, this is now December and we're recording this on a Friday afternoon. I have had a super busy week. I have no doubt you have as well. I hope you're keeping safe and well. It's still some pretty trying times out there for all of us. And uh, we really want to make sure that we get through this thing together. So hang in there. We're so used to working from home right now that it's just become second nature. Today, what I want to do is explore something to do with 2020, and that's really around the network and some of the plans that I'm sure many of you had for upgrades and improvements to your network during this year. I have certainly heard stories of some of our customers who've had to put those plans back, make some changes to those based on what's happened this year. And obviously, that's can be pretty challenging, especially when you know vendors keep on updating and improving their products and solutions over time. So we wanted to get into a little bit of a discussion about that today. And to take us through that discussion, we have managed to track down our very elusive guest today. His name is Tom Hollingsworth. And Tom, uh, please do introduce yourself. Tell us what you do. Hi, I am Tom Hollingsworth. You may know me from Twitter and the online space as the networking nerd. I am an event lead for the Tech Field Day event series, specializing in networking, wireless, and security. And when I am not planning Tech Field Day events, I do a lot of writing and analysis for data transport technologies for Gestalt IT. Wow, that's quite a resume already. And so Tom, I know, has uh, worked with a number of different networking vendors, including Cisco Meraki in the past, around the Tech Field Day organization, which we have great respect for. There's a lot of fantastic content on that website. So really excited to get into a discussion with Tom today. Also joining us, and actually who's going to be leading the conversation today, it's Mr. Michael Singer. Hey, Michael, what's going on? Hey, Simon. I'm doing well. Thank you. Tell us what you do for Meraki. So I have joined Meraki as a product marketing manager specializing in switches, so the MS series. Just very excited to be here, really eager to talk about this topic. Yeah, it's definitely one which I think is going to resonate with quite a few folks out there. I mean, of course, we have the technology that lets us connect to our devices remotely. And that's, all, of course, the point of technologies like the Meraki Cloud. But at some point, this thing becomes physical. This becomes a, an actual physical device. And those have to be maintained and cared for just like anything else in our world. So, Michael, why don't you just kick off that conversation and let's explore this in more detail? Absolutely, Simon. And thanks so much, Tom. It's great having you on this uh, Meraki Unboxed episode. And, you know, as Simon kind of set us up, a lot of us had plans for uh, 2020. Either they were in the middle of being implemented or maybe they had things set up and, and ready to go. And then, of course, a pandemic happens. So what I wanted to start off by asking is, what are you seeing in the industry as it pertains to those plans and network equipment? How are people extending this into, say, 2021? And how crazy is it out there? It's a fascinating way to look at the way that enterprises prioritize equipment purchase, equipment upgrade type things. Because if you had told me, we'll say 14 months ago, that enterprise hardware spending was going to be down and that remote access spending was going to be up, I probably would have laughed at you. I mean, how many times have we heard over the years, you know, remote access is okay. You know, working from home infrastructure, whatever. I don't need to worry about that. And then suddenly in March of 2020, it's the most important thing on the radar. We watched people, Herculean effort might be underselling it a little bit, spending a weekend to get enough VPN licenses up so that the entire workforce can now operate from a safe place. 
And to see the way that that has just kind of ripples in a pond created other kinds of considerations that you have to worry about. So now that I don't have everybody in the office, do I need to upgrade my switches? What about my security infrastructure? How is that going to play into things? You're now thinking about everything in a much different way because the static things that we've always taken for granted, there's an office, it must have these things, it must have this infrastructure, I don't care about home, got turned on its head. And now I care about home, I care about my employees' ability to get to the cloud or get to my resources. And that building, we may not open it up fully in 2021. So do we install new hardware and just let it sit? Do we hold off on the replacement cycle? How's all this going to work? And I don't think anybody has any answers right now. That's a very uh, uh, astute way of putting it. Is there a common denominator among the professionals that you speak with? I mean, you did kind of indicate that you know some of them were not thinking about updating access or working from home situations, but what's the through line that you hear time and time again from your colleagues and constituents? Well, the through line that I've heard a lot is a real honest reassessment of how they do business and how they can improve that across the board without necessarily relying on old technology. So unless you've been living under a rock for the last two years, you know that digital transformation is something that's driving the way that we do stuff. And a lot of components of digital transformation come from new paradigm shifts like the cloud is a really good example of this. And yes, we're gonna talk about the cloud because when you are an existing organization that's done things the way that they've done them for years, and your accounting applications in the office. And I know that I used to work for a company that their accounting application was essentially a terminal window in a DOS-based application. And the day we had to upgrade that because it wasn't being upgraded anymore, people were upset. How dare you take this away from me? But they're also the same people that if you had told them, hey, I need you to work from home for the next three months because I don't want you to die, they would have been like, well, I can't work from home because I have to be in the office to use this application. Well, now professionals are like, we may not go back. Even if everything opens back up, we may not go back. We may have just proven that we don't need an office. How can we port these applications that we've been using to something that is easily accessible, whether I'm in the office at my house in a coffee shop or wherever? There's a lot of really interesting dynamics that are going on there. And it's something I've heard a lot of people say, 2020 is essentially the umbrella ripping the Band-Aid off of everything. Because, well, let's face it, March lasted like seven months this year. <laughs> so we've been tearing all kinds of IT Band-Aids off. And now people are kind of settling into that. Well, if we're going to do something, we might as well do it because we've made it this far. And so that's triggering a lot of these thought processes. So a lot of people are finally starting to get past that IT mentality of as long as we can make it work one more week, we're not going to replace it. This is not the first time that we've had to go through this, is it? I mean... If you think about uh, some even recent history, the, the Y2K bug prompted a lot of purchases. It prompted a lot of people to do that investment and to have a drop-dead deadline. And then there was an economic downturn in 2008, which required people to even pull back and a lot of their plans. So I guess the question is, did we learn anything from those previous crisis events? It's the uh, Santayana quote, those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. I would argue that those who pretend that the past was rosier than it should have been, the past will rhyme with you eventually. Because we did learn that we can do things really fast when we have to. We learned that given very difficult circumstances, we are tenacious enough to get things done quickly. 
but that's also that Superman mentality of if Lois Lane's in trouble, she's not overly worried because Superman's just around the corner. Even when she's in the middle of falling off the top of a skyscraper because Lex Luthor threw her off, she's like, all right, he's going to be here in like 10 seconds. We've never faced a part where we've had to like buckle down because there is no tomorrow. I think Y2K may have been the closest, but that was just because of the hype. Yeah, I'm actually recalling Y2K as you're talking about it. And it was all hype. There was so much hype yeah. that time. That's what's something a little different. We were all sort of waiting for the world to end at midnight. And um, I remember a window full of pings, which was about as sophisticated as network monitoring was for me at that time. And nothing happened. I got paid a lot yeah. of money that night, though. So that was good. And I think that the success of what we were able to do in Y2K, because that was right around the start of my IT career. I was just getting out of college and just starting to get into things. The success actually doomed us to problems down the road because, you know, there was more than a fair amount of hype, but there was also a lot of stuff on the back end that needed to be fixed that got fixed. And then we just had to deal with the exceptions. It's like any cutover. You know, we got the bulk of the work done. Now we're, we're fixing the little problems that crop up a week later. But because we did it and because we made it look like there was a lot of hype, we were successful in proving that maybe not every problem is doomsday. Then that's the boy who cried wolf problem. Well, now, okay, the 2008 downturn, looking forward, the, you know, the 2038 time overflow bug, for those of you who don't know, basically embedded systems store time in a certain way. And in the year 2038, that's going to roll over and do like an overflow thing. And when that happens, clocks are going to stop. And you're thinking, oh, that's not a problem. We've got 17 years to fix that problem. <laughs> yeah, we had a, we had 20 years to fix the problem in Y2K. And boy, it got real busy starting in October when everyone went, hey, we only have three months left. We need to fix this now. And yet preparation is the key. So knowing their past and those who have decided to at least take it seriously, how prepared are organizations or were organizations to mitigate this pandemic and what kinds of demands it was being thrown at them. I would like to see the sales numbers for VPN concentrators and VPN client <laughs> licenses uh, yes. around about March of 2020, because I promise you, somebody made money. A lot of people were not prepared because they had always looked at traditional infrastructure as being based on premises and remote work being the exception instead of the rule. And if they had the capability at all, it was token at best. I mean, how many VPN users do we need? Well, I don't know how many people are ever going to need to dial in to check their email from Arizona at once. Ten. Okay. Ten's the smallest number of licenses we can buy. Yeah. We're stuck with it. And then overnight, now we need to have a thousand VPN licenses. Or if we're going to have to pay that much for the VPN licenses, why can't we host this in the cloud or, or you know, some combination of those things? So I think a lot of people got caught flat-footed because this was not the IT disaster they were waiting for. Like I, I for for the um, for the audience, I live in Oklahoma. We live in something called Tornado Alley. Our ideas of disasters involve big funnel-shaped wind clouds wiping out data centers, just like pulling them off the bricks. So we have a very unique way of looking at business continuity, which is how can we get this equipment spun up in a different data center, geolocated away from angry wind. Our idea of disaster recovery was not, we're going to be locked into our houses for three months while, you know, a disease works its way through the society. Even the best disaster planning in the world, if you weren't expecting that disaster, you are going to be caught flat-footed. There are already episodes in the archive of this podcast of folks that we spoke to earlier in the year who 
definitely would attest to all of those comments and specifically around VPN and the sudden explosion in demand that they saw. And so the ability obviously to adapt quickly in those situations was seen as vital at that particular time. But yes, that one was huge. And thankfully, I think we saw a pretty good response to it. So I've heard pretty much always good stories around the ability to pivot to your point, Tom. I mean, we've shown we can do it. As part of that pivot, then, what are the new priorities for IT and network administrators? Are they mostly focused on that working from home experience or are they concerned more about securing the networks or something else? The focus is user enablement. My people are no longer in the downstairs office suite. They are in their office at home. How do I enable them to do their job? What do I need to do? So think about IT replacement cycles of the past. Okay, you need a new desktop. Well, now that's a laptop because you're going to be working from home. We need a bigger bandwidth pipe coming into the building. No. Do we need to consider upgrading our critical users to business class consumer lines? Things like SD-WAN, when SD-WAN's deployment strategy was, oh, well, we'll deploy to all of the branch offices that your organization might have. What's that going to be? 10, 12, 15? Yeah, now you have 500 branch offices. They don't have great infrastructure because they're all houses. Well, how are you going to do that? A lot of people who were looking at new models of connectivity were able to very quickly spin on those because they were thinking far enough ahead. But there's still a lot of things to worry about. Think about a traditional enterprise security architecture. You have a firewall on the perimeter and you have appliances behind that that do things like data loss prevention is a good example. So something scanning all the traffic going out. Did I just detect a social security number in an email? We need to block that. That DLP box is lonely right now because it's sitting behind a firewall that nobody is accessing or very few people are accessing. And now I've got finance people are sitting at home sending all of these emails. I don't know what their personal security solution looks like. I think that IT departments are throwing their hands up in the air because they're like, you know, we just spent all this money on this firewall. We can't use it. And now I'm having to manage a home network that I didn't put together and users who can't tell me, you know, oh, everything's running slow. Well, it turns out five people in your house are on video calls and somebody's trying to download an update on the Xbox all while you're trying to do something. Yeah, things are going to be slow. Yeah, I think the one that I've experienced personally actually has been upstream bandwidth issues from home because, of course, we're still in an era of many people having asynchronous connections at home. And if you're using any kind of a photo app, for example, nowadays, you take a lot of pictures that could potentially be you know, really swallowing up your bandwidth. So that really can impact that experience that people are having at home. Absolutely. So turning slightly towards future proofing and what the kind of impact that this pandemic has had. Presumably, some organizations have done their pre-work prior to 2020. Some are in the middle of that choice, and some are looking forward to next year. What impact has this pandemic had on those network replacement cycles? Where are people looking now? That's a really good question. We live in this world where everybody thinks that they need to get new stuff every three to five years, unless you buy an iPhone, in which case you need one every year. So people are on this treadmill of, well, we need to upgrade for this reason. We need a faster processor. We need more ports. We need something. And now they're looking at it going, well, nobody's using that stuff. So do we need to replace it? Or, you know, can we make it work another six months while we, you know, recover our revenues? Or we justify whether or not we even need to be in this building anymore because we used to have 100 employees in this building and now we have 12. It's made people ask really important questions. And I think a lot of it comes down to, what is the purpose of this upgrade? We talk about this a lot when we talk about things like traditional networking and wireless. If I'm upgrading my switches every five years 
for my traditional networking group, I have to ask myself, why? Because most devices, unless they're very specialized workstations, still have gigabit ethernet cards. Gigabit ethernet's been around for a while, and I don't know of very many switching vendors that sell 10 gig only switches. Likewise, wireless, we've been chasing a lot of wireless unicorns for a while from 11AC, wave one and wave two to 11AX, and now we're in uh, six gigahertz. So a lot of people were kind of rolling through their wireless upgrades. Now it's like, well, I don't need enterprise class wireless in my office building because nobody's going to come visit and they're not working out of here. But my home users are using big box stuff that barely works on a good day. Do I need to ship them an AXAP, even though they may not be able to use the AX part of it? I need that capability in order to be able to work on things. It's forced the way that people buy networking equipment to analyze how the people that use that equipment are now using those things. I've talked to a lot of companies that are basically they're sitting on an equipment budget that they can't spend because they can't justify it. So now they're trying to figure out, can we spend this? Should we hold on to it? Or should we do something to help the way our network looks now? I'll just throw something in there as well, which I've noticed is that there is some variability by vertical and use case. For example, in the education space and also in the healthcare sector, perhaps unsurprisingly, there's been this need for greater flexibility around network access. And there are issues around, you know, the digital divide and those kind of stories we hear about. So we know, for example, that schools have been very interested in ensuring that their Wi-Fi is up to the job of supporting their local community. And we've even heard cases of schools that have been really trying to think of it as a community project. So they're providing resources which other public bodies can take advantage of from the building that they ultimately own and operate. Tom, I'm really appreciating what you're saying about these lifecycle replacement cycles because there's a lot of listeners that are out there, I'm certain, who are also questioning, do I need to purchase this kind of equipment every X amount of years? From our perspective and what we tout is that there's certain milestones that people need to be aware of, end of life, end of sale, end of new service, and last day of support. In your estimation, what are the critical milestones for these administrators and planners to keep track of? A lot of people get very hung up on end of life. That is like the world is coming to an end. Oh my God, this company suddenly said they're done with this product. But end of life does not mean we're cutting everybody off because people freak out. End of life is essentially a company kind of coming up to you and going, hey, this isn't working for us anymore and we're going to move away from it. We just wanted to let you know, you know, we're not going to sell this car model anymore starting in a couple of years. You know, then you get to end of sale. All right, you can't buy any more of these anymore. It's fine. We're good with that. You should buy the new one if you really need it. But, you know, here's that date. The support dates are the important part. Because when you look at anything that's supported for a time after this, that's when you need to worry. And even end of support is not always end of support. And I use Windows as a perfectly good example of this for those out there that are not Mac users like me. You know, Microsoft has supported all kinds of versions of Windows. I remember working on Windows XP, you know, back in 2001, 2002. You can still find the occasional patch for Windows XP up until like just a couple of years ago. And it was way out of support. Why? Well, it turns out that companies do end up having to support a huge install base of certain things. Now, Windows is a really weird example because it was the only product that Microsoft made from an operating system perspective. When this hardware vendor and we're like, okay, we make 14 different kinds of switches, we're going to stop selling three of them because you know, like the technology's old or we need to move to a new platform. 
the support could go on for those for a while. So end of life should not be the end. It should be your beginning of figuring out how much longer do I need to run this? Do I have a strategy for upgrading it? And when is the end of support? Because if it's something that you just bought or is fairly recent, end of life does not mean you have to rip it out tomorrow and replace it. An end of sale really doesn't mean much at all for you anyway. The only reason end of sale should matter to somebody is if you want to buy like four extras to keep on the shelf in case these break. End of support is where you're worried because once the support goes out on something, then you have to make that cost benefit analysis. Am I going to have my people spending more time fixing it than I would if I just replaced it with something new? And is the disruption of replacing it with something new worth the investment of disrupting, having to have an outage window and, and staging and all these other things? I remember people are like, oh, you know, company X, end of life to the switch. Oh, no, oh, no, we just bought some. I'm like, and you can run them until the parts fall out. I remember replacing motherboards in IBM computers that were years out of date. And it got bad enough at one point, like Simon mentioned, it was a school. So they were trying to squeeze that last little bit of life out of those things that they could. I was buying parts off of eBay, totally not supported, but I could fix them. It's funny because when you say that, I actually, when I came up with this thought line, I thought to myself, yeah, there's got to be at least one or two people in some company staff that would even do a dumpster dive and fish things out just because they know how to rip and replace you know, small components. But from that perspective, though, you know, what kind of suggestions then do you have for those support teams and network integrators, et cetera? What kinds of things could you say to them about even living through a last day of support situation? I hope you have access to a good calendar program where you can mark some milestones because any end of life notice that's ever been filed in the world is not just a date with RIP and a skull emoji on it. It is today is the day we announced the end of this product. Here's when we're going to stop selling it. Here's when we're going to stop supporting it. That end of support date is your drop dead date to have an answer to the question, what do we do? If the answer is we're going to rip it and replace it with something new that's supported, Great. And that's your answer. If the answer is there is no reason why we shouldn't be able to keep using this for another three years past the support date, then that's your answer. And you have flexibility in there. Don't just immediately race to, you know, we got to pull it out tomorrow because they stopped selling it. That's a knee jerk reaction. And no IT department ever needs to have a knee jerk reaction to any kind of news, bad or good. You need to have a plan in place. You need to have dates in the calendar. You need to have call team meetings. And Lord knows we have enough of those as it is, but this is like one of those, like we really need to talk about this. Are these switches gonna do what we need to do? Do we need to upgrade? I have this argument with my wife all the time because I'm like, hey, we need a new access point in the house. She goes, well, no, we don't. I'm like, but but I see it's got features and things that I want. She goes, we use old equipment and it still works. You, you don't need the new thing. We deal with that all the time with uh, consumer technology devices. I need the new iPhone. Why? It's got a LiDAR scanner in it. You, you don't have a use for a LiDAR scanner, and they haven't written software to take advantage of it. But it's cool, and I got to have it. And yeah, and maybe in two years, I'll need a LiDAR scanner. And in two years, I can look and getting a phone that has one. But if my phone still makes phone calls and still opens the apps that I needed to open, I don't see a need to get a new one. We got to be honest, though. Let's be honest. I would imagine that... There are not too many people listening to this podcast who are not just a little bit susceptible to that kind of shiny new thing and then the attraction of those new features. So uh, that, that will always be with us, I feel. 
One thing that we do want to address here is not just the hardware and that replacement cycle, but also the necessity of the software that can help run this. And cloud is really obviously helping pretty much all networks to be able to do configurations, management, et cetera. Talk a little bit, if you can, about, you know, now that we're here at the end of the year, you know, a lot of people are going through change freezes because they're going to be doing audits. Are there things that you can think about that we want to let our listeners know that are good for those last minute adjustments right now, especially in this kind of uh, environment? So a lot of people have something they call like a punch list or call it like a, a release notes thing of here are the things we know are wrong and need to be fixed at some point. You know, obviously they get severity levels. This is a critical bug. We got to fix it right now. This is important, but not crucial. We can get to it a little bit. Here's the, we really wish we could rename this switch at some point in the future, but we can deal without that. You need to have a priority list and you need to have a strict priority list. So let me give you an example. The Washington headquarters is completely offline and that's where the database servers live. That's a priority one issue. We fix that. The CEO got a funny email. That's not a priority one issue unless your network's down. So make sure that you have priorities assigned and that everybody agrees. You know, maybe CEO email funny priority two, my email funny priority four, or whatever your ranking system is. But more importantly, you need to make sure that all of the critical priority issues are solved or can be put into a state that they are not critical priority before the change freeze hits, whether it's an audit. Selfishly, I just don't want to get my pager going off on Christmas Eve. I'm like, oh, crud, this cloud instance got shut down for some reason, or, or there's a bit bucket that's exposed to the internet that I need to secure. You don't want to run into those problems. So you need to make sure that the team understands that. When I did this as a practitioner for years, I had this rule I would never make a change in a network during a change freeze window that I wasn't so sure that needed to happen that if someone walked up and punched me in the face for making the change that I wouldn't feel like it was deserved. You know, if you walk up and slap somebody, they're like, they're going to get mad at you. But if this had to happen and the response was I got slapped because I made it, it still had to happen. So I'll take that one for the team. That's how I've always ranked my priority issues. Because I've spent a lot of my time with like the CEO or the CTO sitting over my shoulder, hitting me over the head with a wooden spoon. Like, you need to fix this. This is down. And there's varying degrees of you can hit me and I get away with it versus you need to back off because this is not as important as you made it out to be. I never thought of networking as being a contact sport. (laughs) That's pretty funny. Yeah, I'm just trying I'm to picture this, you a this, card for that. this work scenario that Tom's had to deal with. It's, it's reminding me of the Dave, the IT guy, uh, Meraki cartoon that uh, some of our listeners may have seen. It's, it's not so much a contact sport in we don't tackle each other with shoulder pads anymore, but it's that idea that there are certain things that are critical and that need to be addressed. And yes, I have taken networks down in the middle of the day. I have erased things that really should not have been erased, but... The question then becomes, is this something that could have waited? How critical was this? And I have been known to jump in a car and drive three hours across the state to fix a problem that had to be fixed right now and then show up and be like, that was not a problem that I needed to drive to fix. So what steps can you suggest that companies can take to prepare them for these other disruptions? Because, I mean, you know, 2020 is, in some people's minds, just the tip of the iceberg. So I want everyone who's here to, in your mind, close your eyes, find your moment of Zen, 
and I want you to mentally place your hands on your DR plan. Okay, did you find it? Are hands dusty? Like, do you feel like they're coated with dirt? If you could find it, because a lot of people don't know where their DR plan lives right now. Your disaster um, so, recovery plan, right? Yes, that's right. So when we talk about this in the IT space, DR is disaster recovery, and we sometimes say BC for business continuity. Disaster recovery is what happens when things blow up. Business continuity is how do I make my company run after the things blew up? And most people should have, all people should have really, but most people have a three ring binder with paper that's in that binder that contains instructions on what should happen if things go wrong. There should be general instructions. Who do we call? Who needs to know what happened? And what is the plan for triaging general problems? And just so everyone knows, if your DR plan essentially says, if things break, call Tom, and then he'll know what to do, your DR plan is bad because your DR plan is not specific and your DR plan is not executable. Here's a better DR plan. In the event that things happen, you call these three people. You notify them what's happened. You call them in. They have to get up where they are and get to where you are. When they arrive, you will have a meeting. You will discuss these options, and then they will work on their specialty. After that, you know, event plus two hours, you call these four other people and let them know what's going on. Specific, actionable tasks have to be in your plan. And that's usually where most people's disaster recovery stuff starts falling apart, is because they take the general thing of these people are smart and will know what to do. There's a very old test that a lot of people will use in enterprise IT. It's called the hit by a bus test. If you've never done this before, it's actually really cool. Pick a member of your IT team one week and you point at them and you say, Simon, you just got hit by a bus. You are on a week's paid vacation. Shut off your phone, shut off your email. Do not answer anything for the next week. And then Simon walks out of the office and you look at the rest of the team. You go, Simon just got hit by a bus. I need you to do Simon's job for the next week. Do not call Simon. You ask me if you have any problems. And if I have to call Simon, I'm going to be mad at you for not knowing what Simon's job is. That's how you cross train your team to avoid a disaster like a team member being completely unavailable for catastrophic reasons. But your infrastructure has to survive that too. What happens if your primary data center location gets knocked out? Well, what's the solution? Uh, well, we're going to restore from backup. Where are the backup tapes? Uh, I kid you not, I had a customer who their DR plan was, if our building ever gets destroyed for whatever reason, we will restore it from backup. That person remembered what the DR plan was as the tornado was on track to hit their data center and had to run back into the data center to grab a cardboard box full of tapes that was in the data center to throw them in his pickup truck as he was driving away from the storm cloud to get to safety. And I'm like, as soon as that they told me that, I went back to him like, you did update the DR plan to mention, we will restore from a tape backup, here are the tapes location, and someone needs to take those tapes home once a week to make sure that there is one copy that is not in the location where the disaster could happen. And they're all like nodding their heads going, yeah, yeah, we updated it. <laughs> and the other thing, the other thing I will mention, if your disaster recovery plan has dust on the binder, it failed because a disaster recovery document should be a living, breathing thing that is constantly updated. You need to have a copy in the data center. You need to have an electronic copy that people are constantly looking at and those two better match. People need to know where to find it. So you should run drills of, I need you to go get me the disaster recovery plan. I need you back in five minutes. If it takes you 10, we got a problem because they need to be able to put hands on that and start the process immediately. 
think of something like uh, you've ever heard uh, cockpit chatter from an airline. Like if there's an airplane that is having trouble, they don't wait and go, hey, where's the book that tells us what to do when that light's on? They immediately start checks. Here's one. Nope. Here's two. Nope. Here's three. That's the one. What does that say to do? Because time is of the essence in a disaster scenario. And if the less time you have to fix the problem, the more chaos will ensue. Fantastic. You know, I don't want to end the conversation on the downside. So there's got to be a bright side to this disruption. Please tell me there's good news on the horizon. Oh, there absolutely is. A lot of what was been coming out of IT teams for, you know, the last effectively eight months has kind of felt like doom and gloom. It's like, oh, you know, we've completely disrupted things. I've heard stories like, you know, we're going to get rid of all commercial real estate because everybody's going to be working from home, which I think is probably a little hyperbolic at this point. But having the user be the focus for the first time has been a huge boon because now instead of me just buying bigger, badder equipment every couple of years and no one knowing what the feature set is, now I've had to ask some really important questions like, how does this affect my user base? Is this something that is useful for them? So maybe instead of having a VPN concentrator, now we say, well, we're going to shift these three applications into the cloud. We're going to have a different authentication mechanism so you don't have to carry around those silly little tokens. And now we can work remotely and not just remotely from my house where I have all my infrastructure, but maybe I can go to the park and work now with other functionality. So the users are now empowered to be able to do their job. And whereas in the past, users would go to, to IT and to management and go, this thing doesn't work. If you're a fan of the IT crowd show, either here in the US or, or the UK, you know, you, you imagine the IT people in the basement kind of waving their hands, like, you know, shut it off and turn it back on again. That's mm -hmm. not going to happen now because as soon as a user comes up and goes, I can't get this working, IT now has a path to resolution. Does it need to be a hardware replacement? Does it need to be a software replacement? Does it need to be a new service that we need to turn up? And that can happen quickly because we realize now how important it is to keep the users working. You know, in the old days when a switch went out, that was a big problem because we had to replace the users on the switch. Well, now if a service goes down, users are just as affected as they would be if the switch was out. And so we need to mobilize quickly to get that done. But it also means that through the planning process of mobilizing those resources to, you know, to fix the service or to deploy something maybe to the cloud, we're thinking about our backup plan because it used to be that our backup plans were real easy. You know, we'll throw one on the shelf and, and we'll install it. And now we're having to think about, well, what happens if the backup plan is, is I can't leave my house for another month. How am I going to make this work? How am I going to keep people employed? I wanted to throw in a positive one as well. You touched on this earlier, Tom, um, and it also reminded me of uh, perhaps my favorite tweet of 2020, at least that I've seen anyway, which was around digital transformation. I really do think that this is actually pretty exciting for anybody working in the technology field because we've been talking about digital transformation for years and you know, uptake on it has not been quite as fast as those of us in the industry might like. But my goodness, what a change we've seen as a result of this pandemic and the sudden shock to the system. That tweet basically said, what's been the biggest driver for your business for your digital transformation? And it's a multiple choice, A, B, C, with A being CEO and B being CIO and C being COVID-19. I really think that that's a pretty exciting one. We've got uh, some interesting developments that are going to change a lot of industries. And we're just really, I think, at the beginning of that. I would honestly say that COVID-19 in 2020 was the biggest driver of IT change that I have seen in years. And while the situation was not optimal for that, I think the results are going to be something that we can look back and say, we're proud 
that we were able to respond to this in a way that enabled the people that we work with. Excellent sentiment. Tom, thank you so much for those uh, responses. Well, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been a great discussion. Yeah, we picked up on some really great points there. Thank you so much, Tom. This is why we love having guests coming in from outside to give us some different perspectives and help us see parts of the industry that we don't always see directly when we're looking out from the vendor's perspective. So really appreciate it, Tom. And I think we've all earned our place in this upcoming weekend. So thank goodness for that. What I'd like to do just quickly now before we sign off is just uh, remind you all that, uh, as I just said, we do love to have your participation in this podcast. So whether you are listening because you're a community member on the Meraki community, whether it's because you uh, heard about this or you're a regular subscriber, uh, I would definitely encourage you to reach out with any ideas you have or if you'd like to participate in a discussion on here. We'd love to hear those and we would love to get you on the microphone. So you can find me online pretty easily. I'm on Twitter every single day. At Meraki Simon is my handle on there. Uh, so that's the good place to start. It's going to find me pretty quickly. And uh, we can start a conversation, maybe get you on to Meraki Unboxed. I hope you found this episode interesting and enlightening as much as we enjoyed recording it. And we look forward to welcoming you back for what will be the last Meraki Unboxed of 2020. That's coming up in just a couple of weeks. So stay tuned and we'll see you there. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.